0: Hello, and welcome back to the Brew Theology podcast. On this week's episode, we'll be talking with Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III. You'll be listening in on a live event at McAfee School of Theology with your hosts, Ryan Miller and Piper Ramsey Sumner. If you'd like to learn more about Brew Theology, you can find us at brewtheology.org, at brewtheology on Instagram and Facebook, and at brew underscore theology on Twitter. Before we get started, I'd like to introduce you to Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III. With civil rights advocacy in his DNA, Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III built his ministry on community advancement and social justice activism. As senior pastor of Trinity United Church of Christ in Chicago, Illinois, Dr. Moss spent the last two decades practicing and preaching a black theology that unapologetically calls attention to the problems of mass incarceration, environmental justice, and economic inequality. Dr. Moss is part of a new generation of ministers committed to preaching a prophetic message of love and justice, which he believes are inseparable companions that form the foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A native of Cleveland, Ohio, Dr. Moss is an honors graduate of Morehouse College who earned a Master of Divinity from Yale Divinity School and a Doctor of Ministry degree from Chicago Theological Seminary. With a unique gift to communicate across generations, Dr. Moss's creative Bible-based messages have inspired young and old alike. His intergenerational preaching gift has made Dr. Moss a popular speaker on college campuses, at conferences, and churches across the globe. He is author of several books, including Blue Note Preaching in a Post-Soul World, Finding Hope in an Age of Despair. His sermons, articles, and poetry have appeared in publications such as Sojourner's Magazine and the African American Pulpit Journal. Dr. Moss is an ordained minister in the Progressive National Baptist Convention and the United Church of Christ. He is married to his college sweetheart and has two children. Dr. Moss is currently serving as the visiting professor of preaching at McAfee School of Theology at Mercer University. Thank you for tuning into the Brew Theology Podcast, and here is the interview with Reverend Doctor Otis Moss III.
1: All right, hey everybody, welcome tonight. Hey. hey, we are we are so glad that you're here. Seriously, this is um, this is an event that every single year is a priority for us, and we obviously we missed last year, and we're so pumped to be doing this again. A couple of things for you. First of all, there's a full service kitchen if you didn't know that. And also, there are drink menus. So, And, and there's Jamie Way for us. Look. <laughs> y'all, Jamie's been serving me cheap beer while I write my dissertation for years now. Um, so please be very good to her. Make sure you tip the staff. Uh, they're working really hard for us. Yeah, yeah. So look, y'all, this. This location is pretty awesome. I'm excited that that I can share this with you. So folks don't know this, I lived a couple of blocks down when I was in seminary. And from that back booth right there, I probably wrote 60 pages of my master's thesis. And I would go there in the evenings, I would start writing until they closed. Jamie would throw me the rag, I'd wipe down my own table, and then I would walk home. So in a really cool way, I I get to share a part of my theological formation with you all, and that's cool for me. So look, the reason we have this event is because a conversation that Dean Deloach and I had about, I don't know, four or five years ago, at a little hole in the wall in Virginia. And we had a conversation, we were in two different roles at the time, about the fact that McAfee needed to, to bring theology outside of the seminary. And this was one way that we could do that. And so this event, this idea that we want your theological formation as seminary students and grads to extend beyond your classroom walls really is an extension of Dean Deloach's leadership and his vision for the seminary. And so as we continue through this evening, and I hope as you continue through your seminary journey, that you'll, you'll take that with you. And as you move into your ministries, as you move into your nonprofits, uh, as you move into your counseling or therapy roles, that you'll recognize that theology moves beyond walls of the building, that theology comes with you, that you are constantly in process, and that tonight is one of those nights where even in some tiny way we hope that you are formed, and we believe it will be for the better. So before I turn this over to the really awesome folks at Brew Theology, let me give a toast. At McAfee we like to say that these bears preach, and I think tonight it would be appropriate to say, as Heather Franklin reminded me this weekend, not only do these bears preach, these beers preach. All right. Cheers, everybody. Nice. Thank you.
2: Amen.
3: And as what we would say in Waco, eh, hey, sick bears. Ooh. Wrong bears, I know. <laughs> hey, now. Them already. I'm trying to start off on the right note. It wasn't a blue note, but. So, uh, Nathan, I... I actually think that your last five pages were when we met at Wow Goose Festival in North Carolina. I think you were finishing up. That's when we met. Oh, wow. There you go. So now I, now I feel circle. complete, full circle. Here we go. Well, welcome, everybody. Um, and my name is Ryan Miller. I'm the founder and the co-director of Brew Theology. And Piper over here is the director of the Tallahassee Brew Theology chapter. We have chapters across the country. Yeah. We brew theology in pubs and coffee houses. We create interfaith communities through what we think is healthy, meaningful, and eclectic dialogue. And uh, we truly do affirm all people from all walks of life, as long as people aren't a-holes. And every chapter has their own words. The we roles. say jerk. I do because if I'm the director of this, i got to be a little PC. Other people say other words, in which you probably already use in your homes anyway.
4: <laughs> uh, so there
3: is that. And Atlanta, Atlanta had a chapter at one point, and I think if anybody wants to pick up those reins, you can. We just started one in Columbus recently as well. So if you're interested at all about what that looks like, just come talk to me afterward, and we can exchange information, and uh, it's it's actually cheaper than a Netflix account. There you go. Tonight, uh, if you think if people are like, well, that's, that sounds weird. Interfaith is weird. I get this all the time, because now that I, I, li- I, I, I was in Denver, now I'm in Waco, and so people think that I'm very heretical now because I do interfaith work, and it wasn't heretical in Denver, so now I'm having to figure out how to talk to people about this stuff, so an altruistic person, as we all know, is somebody who is concerned with uh, and devoted to the welfare, welfare of others, right? An and, and altruistic person is a happier person because they're doing those things while drinking beer or coffee or tea. So it's just a really easy way to talk to people if you're, if you're wondering about what Ruth Theology is all about.
2: You said altruist? Altruist,
3: mm. yes, altruist. Yes. And if, you're, yeah, if you want to know more about that, talk to me later as well. So, but tonight we are talking about preaching and community development. And
2: Lost the first beer already.
3: <laughs> without further ado, we're going to bring up our first guest, because I think both of our guests, uh, they don't really need a long introduction, because you're here for, for them and for McAfee School of Theology. And uh, one of these guests, the first guest, is, uh, is a newbie. Some of y'all have had him in class before. We're honored to talk with him tonight, and it is Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III. Nice. Yeah. Senior pastor of Trinity United Church of Christ in Chicago, also professor of homiletics here at McAfee, uh, author of many books, Blue Note Preaching in a Postal World, Finding Hope in an Age of Despair, uh, an, art, an artist, a visionary, has done a lot of work in, in film, and you've been on Oprah. Hey, but now you get to be on the Brew Theology podcast, so you can tell, tell Oprah what's up. So there's that. Uh, Otis, it's good to have you.
5: It's great to be here.
3: How, how's Atlanta treating you, first off? Oh, I love the ATL, man. Yeah. There's nothing like it. So Georgia's like home for me. And we just, we just found out earlier, we, we do have a love for a similar basketball player, DeMar DeRozan, now in Chicago. There we go. There so we, go. we can go off and talk. We have screens behind us for those who are listening online with basketball games. So if we get distracted, you just got to blame the people who have those Nine o'clock, Baylor and Texas. That's right. Uh, the Bears and the Longhorns are playing later. But tonight we're going to be talking about uh, preaching in this, uh, this unique world in which we live in. So we got to keep this a little bit tight just because we have a time constraint. Sure. Uh, if we wanted to record later, we could do this for three hours. Uh, so first things first is, so you grew up in this faith community where preaching, it, it was respected. It's not so much respected in today's world in which we know. They're known as artists, academics, weaving together poetry, pragmatic wisdom. So first question for you, just being personal, Whom were the the preachers and influencers in your early life uh, as an early preacher that that you're like, these guys got me going?
5: Oh, without a doubt, my father. He was just, I call him a sniper as a preacher because he just (laughs) takes aim, and when he's ready, he just takes you out completely. Um, It was my father. It was Gardner Taylor, Howard Thurman. Uh, There was a, a, who was like my adopted grandmother, a woman by the name of uh, Esther Smith. She was actually the founder of the New Era uh, Missionary Baptist Convention here in Georgia and was kind of an adopted mother of my father because his his parents died at an early age and so Because of patriarchy she was not allowed to be quote a preacher But she became a self-taught Old Testament scholar and so Students at ITC would go to her house so that she could review their sermons She's like this is bad exegesis right here. You need to learn this <laughs> and so and she that's what she would do and uh and she became kind of a mentor in many ways to my father and to, and to myself. And then there there was my sister. My sister introduced me to um, James Baldwin. Uh, Maya Angel. Those are my children's stories. So she would read to me when I was little. I didn't know what she was reading um, at the time, but it just stuck in my head. And, and those people became, in many ways, to, to me, mentors. So when I got to college in Morehouse, um, I said, oh, I remember my sister used to read these people. <laughs> and and it just kind of connected. So those are just some of the people that, that really influenced me growing up.
2: Love that. All local people very much right around you, surrounding you growing up. So in your book, Blue Note Preaching in a Post-Soul World, you say that the unique, brutal, yet sweet gift of black preaching, what it gives to the world is to allow the gospel to be viewed once again from the eyes of those who sing Psalm 137, 1 through 4, which says, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars, we hung our harps. For there, our captors asked for us songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, "Sing us one of the songs of Zion." So how, as a preacher would you say, do you help congregations, those trapped as prisoners of markets, manifest destiny in men that are foreign to this kind of framework, to dive into this concept and the reality of singing those blue note, those mm. blues songs to the Lord while in a foreign land?
5: Well, you know, I think that for African-American culture and African American spirituality or black religiosity um, speaks so much in a double entendre. So for, for for many people in the African-American tradition, blues and gospel are intertwined. You can't take them apart because blues and gospel are the same thing. Because if you want to play gospel music, you got to know blues chords uh, because it's the exact same chords. Um, and so within the African-American tradition... Yes, Sunday, we, Yeah, it's wonderful, resurrection, but you've got to go past Calvary. You've got to deal with the blues, the existential and the, the, the eschatological. And Jerome Ross, who was a professor at the uh, Samuel DeWitt Proctor um, School of Theology in, in Virginia, said that whenever you read the Bible, you're always reading a text where the people were under some form of oppression which means you've got to know the double entendre. Mm
4: -hmm. The
5: double entendre means that there's one thing that's being said in public, but there's another thing that's being said in private.
4: Mm. It's just
5: like with the spirituals. When you say, swing low, sweet chariot. Oh, that's nice, it's heaven. No, not really. I'm about to get up out of here later on. Mm. Um, (laughs) And so there's there's a double entendre with it. And the same thing in scripture all over the place, double entendre. I mean, we love to read scripture in our head, but we should speak it because it's an oral document. Mm. So when we read about Jesus, for example, um, and the disciples, he's calling, become fishers of men. We spiritualize it in a personalized American framework immediately. Come, you know, just be, be an evangelical. Well, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but in reality, if you take it back with the double entendre, Rome owns Galilee. And Jesus is saying to those come and fish for me, stop fishing for Caesar. Mm. And by doing that, he's literally subverting the Roman economy. <laughs> so first he has these two kind of working class poor guys, you know, you know Simon Peter and his crew, and, and they will follow him. Then James and John, the middle class trust fund guys, end up following Jesus. And in the process, all of a sudden people are saying, hey, we, we don't need to follow him. Mm. We can follow Jesus, which then subverts the economy, which creates a nonviolent revolution at the same time. But in America, we don't like that Mm -hmm. because our Christianity is really capitalism with ecclesiastical garments.
2: Ooh. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Isn't so much of, I feel like, I feel like scripture is calling us to live an alternative, right? Absolutely. And to create it. We have to create that alternative and then live it.
3: Yeah, that's going to be convicting for a lot of listeners and people out here and, so I want to I want to touch more on that that divine imagination which you speak of, and the, in which when you come to the text, and which when you come to your congregation, um, and you've referred to Moses as a Creole child, which is brilliant. I want you to actually let's start that as an example, and, and so because for me I'm like, well, I've never thought of it that way. Of course I haven't thought of it that way. You have. How did you get there? And then if, if you could unpack how you how you you posture yourself, and and you, you you intent yourself upon the text and the community. Because the, this prophetic imagination, in which, which you preach with, is fascinating. Let me just say this. I went to seminary, and I love my seminary, but I didn't get this.
4: <laughs>
3: there you go. There's our first shameless plug. McAfee right, School, of, right. theology, School of Theology, if you're listening. Come here if you want to learn how to Try preach the gospel. There you go. <laughs> you know, I'm glad you, you,
5: you raised that question, because when, when I was growing up, I heard... Preachers who placed the entire community in the text. So it was not, we were not distant. We, for example, I, I heard Wyatt T. Walker was always doing revival at my church. And Wyatt and T. Walker would place, place himself in the text literally, where I thought Moses was from Harlem. I really did. Um, <laughs> Because of the way he framed I'm like, oh, yeah, Moses is from Harlem. Absolutely. You know, and, um, you know, Pharaoh is somewhere on Wall Street. I mean, the, that's the way he was framing things. It was really powerful. And or when I heard Gardner Taylor as, as a kid, this poetic prince of preachers, the way that he would communicate. And what was fascinating is that they would always make this thing come alive. So, so Dr. Taylor preaches about the prodigal son to a point, the story that I heard is that um, as he was preaching and describing the father waiting, the lights went out as he was preaching. And then, of course, someone in the congregation said, go ahead, Doc, we can see him in the dark. You know, I mean, it's a, <laughs> I mean, I mean, that was just the beauty of the kind of preaching. And so when I would hear my father talk about, he said, see Moses as an African. But an African who lived in two worlds. He he knew the souls of black folk living in the world of two-ness. Because he was Egyptian, but he was also Hebrew. Um, two different communities, but they were still living within this, this African space. And then it made sense. I said, oh, New Orleans. He's straight up Creole. You know, he's got two different flavors flowing so heavily. And that's what made him a great leader. Is that he knew the language of the Egyptians? but he knew the groove of the Hebrews. You know, I mean, he, so, so you you're become an amazing leader in that in that sense because he's working on two
3: different levels. So very similar to Paul as well in the New Testament. Yes. So I think people misunderstand Paul quite a bit, and this is, this is off script right now. We don't have, we're not talking about Paul tonight. But I'm curious, when you preach about Paul to, you know, be, being all things to all people, and he's speaking to Gentiles, but he's also a Pharisee of Pharisees. How, uh, how does that work in, in to, when you preach to different congregations?
5: I deal with Paul as kind of the, the miseducated person who got knocked off his horse, you know, because I, I, I love the fact that, that Paul was like this straight up fundamentalist. Yeah, 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 here, I'll, I'll help you stone him, you know? And, and then all of a sudden he is transformed in the midst of, of this and then becomes this, this major gospel troubadour um, in the way that he, the way that he functions. And he was also mistaken in Scripture for an African. So they said, aren't you that Egyptian? He said, no, I'm Paul. Mm -hmm. Um, And and so there's this fascinating thing that within Scripture we have the tendency to to, to frame it with these Western eyes and and not see Scripture in the community that it functioned, Mm -hmm. that that Paul was able to move in the Jewish community. He was able to move in the Roman community. Community. He was able to move in these different communities because of his metropolitan and global education. So Paul is our—he is the urban Christian. Jesus is straight country, you know.
4: So so you've
5: got the so he's he's Troop County. Paul is Atlanta, you know. So so those are the two differences, and we need to kind of embrace those differences where Jesus uses the rule. Paul is always using kind of urban Roman language to be able to explain to you what, what is happening. And and that's the way m- many of us have, have grown up in terms of our, of our faith. Mm-hmm. Some of us lean more Paul and don't realize it. And some of us lean more more Jesus because we, we came from a rural, rural background. Mm-hmm. And some of us are like Moses. Where we're just straight up Creole.
3: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
2: yeah. Thank you. Yeah, that's good. And that makes me think, you know, so my husband grew up Southern, and he kind of has lost his accent a little bit. And I think that's partially because he didn't want to stick out in sort of different kind of spaces. But it makes me think about authenticity mm. and how, um, you know, you've said that there's nothing more deadly in preaching than when you are inauthentic. Oh,
4: yeah. So
2: what, how, do you think that a, how do you think a preacher can find his or her or their own authentic voice in today's world where a lot of us are we are kind of asked to not be authentic or mm. discouraged from it?
5: You know, it's, it takes time. I think it was Malcolm Gladwell talks about in one of his books that there's this 10,000-hour threshold that you have to reach before you kind of develop some pieces. And the problem with preaching is that we are always trying to clone instead of being authentic.
4: Mm. So we
5: want people just like somebody else. But God attunes our voice very specifically. And your voice and your voice and my voice are attuned very specifically to a specific group of people. And, and if you attempt to alter that which you've been attuned to, then you will miss the community that God has designed you to reach. I, I like what I heard a young man when we were in Augusta say when he, he had some challenges and he was like apologizing to his mama. And he said, he said Mom, I want to live my life as an original. I don't want to die a copy. Mm-hmm. And I realized, because I came you know, of age in the golden age of hip-hop, you know, that uh, we would dub tapes, you know, some people don't know what those are, um, but we would actually, you know, dub tapes, $5 tapes, mixtapes and whatnot. But no matter, whenever you dubbed a tape, it was always inferior to the original. So if you were just going to be the copy of another preacher, that we've already got that. We, we don't need that. We, we need people who are going to be authentic and original in their unique voice. You don't have to be like anybody else but mm. you. Mm. Because when you're you, there is only one you, and the you that you are will be able to reach people that no one else can reach because of the you-ness of you. Mm. And, th- and that's the beauty
3: of being you, and that's what we have to recognize. Yeah. Where were you when I was in seminary? (laughs) I may have been preaching at the biggest church in America. No, no, not the, no. But so, in preaching classes, though, it is is a one way. And you've heard so many people, and they're like, they failed preaching classes, or they got C's, or barely got by, or they did what they were supposed to, got the A that they didn't really love. Mm. So this leads me to this, so we talked about authenticity. Now, to get psychological here, shadow work. And you've talked about this before. So first off, for those that don't know and who are listening online, what is shadow work? And then, how important, and how does one do shadow work in community as it relates to a birthed and lived pre-construct of American colonialism? And that's 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 a that's a big that's a big one. I know. Let's just start off with shadow work and see where it goes.
5: Okay. Um, well, the, the the work that has to be done, I, I think, in terms of preaching, is developing your authentic self, and it shouldn't just be. So my my challenge with some of my colleagues is. They were forced into a box of being the little preacher at age 12. There's nothing more dangerous than seeing a 16-year-old looking like they're 60 and walking around a brief place saying, yes, doc. No, you're not, doc. Please stop it. <laughs> you know, just be a kid um, and, and develop from there. But don't box yourself in in the framing theologically, meaning learn literature and philosophy and music. Learn sports. There's a whole lot of stuff that's going to develop you in, in the area of sports. L- learn... I mean, there's, there's so many different things that you have to learn versus being boxed in. And the, the shadow work is, on, is in you. That's the shadow work. And not being boxed into one particular discipline. I think the challenge that we face is that there are disciplines. But back in the day, I mean, early, I mean, the ancient time period... These things mixed together. That if you want to learn math, you have to learn how to... you got to learn music. Music and math go together. Um, if you want to understand physics, you have to know philosophy. I mean, it was all of these things mixed together. We don't do that anymore. We're like straight ahead, one particular discipline. And the shadow work begins by expanding beyond the boxes that people
3: try to create. Mm. On that note, too, you, you had said this before, and I... I've been listening to you, and I've been reading your stuff, and I appreciate I your work. Apologize for whatever you heard. <laughs> <laughs> but you had said, I don't know who you were talking to, that you sometimes just you sit back and you let jazz preach to you. There are no words in jazz. Uh, that 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 to me, I started to do that, uh, and it's 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 so new to me. So it's fascinating. So I appreciate that and. If you want to expand on that, you can, or we can move on to the next question, because I know you love jazz. Yeah, I do. My, I my do. kids now have a nine-year-old and a five-year-old, and they'll be, I'll pick them up from the school line, and they're like, Dad, you listen to jazz again? <laughs> I say, well, you can thank Otis for that, you know? But now they're starting to like it. It's, <laughs> it's a great, that's a good
5: thing. It is a, it's an amazing tradition. Um, a tradition where instruments are not supposed to play together. Saxophone is for the marching band. The piano is European classical. The drum is to play a marching band sound, but not polyrhythms out of Africa. The bow—I mean, the uh, bass is to play, play with a bow, not with your fingers. And everybody has the right to solo. That's democracy at its best, yeah. that everybody gets a chance to communicate out of their own particular cultural narrative. That's jazz. But jazz speaks, for example, when I listen to Thelonious Monk. Thelonious Monk does something that, that is so wonderful in that he says that the real music is in between the notes. It's the space. And, mm. and Monk is always off time but on time. But then there's John Coltrane, who's he's, he's the searching musician. So in the process of when he's playing... He's trying to search to find the center of the spirit. He says that. It's a search, a spiritual search. So whether he's playing uh, My Favorite Things or he's playing uh, Love Supreme, he's searching because he believes that God is not in the word but is in the sound. Mm-hmm. And so I can find God in the sound because when God says left there, that he's, he's saying creation was, came about in a sound. And the beautiful thing about sound, it's different from, from light. Um, is that, you know, we say, you know, let there be, God spoke before there was light and sound travels slower than light. But the beautiful thing about sound is whatever word has ever been given, it never disappears. It only dissipates. Mm. So in in my thought, when people are actually convicted or when they shout in church, it has nothing to do with the preacher's word. They bumped into the word from 2000 years ago that's still circling the earth and touched them. And in that moment, they said, thank you, Jesus. See, that, that's what happens. So, so when those words go out, they continue to communicate. And jazz
3: helps us with that. Amen? Yeah. We usually don't do that on the Brute Theology podcast.
2: No, <laughs> it's <an> amens. <laughs>
3: Look what you've done.
2: <laughs> so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, post-traumatic race disorder, what it is, and
4: <laughs>
2: a challenge. Yeah. And um, how does the preacher's prophetic imagination help a community to battle that? What does it look like as a preacher to engage with it?
5: America collectively is dealing with post-traumatic race disorder. Th- this idea of introducing something into the collective human psyche that has never existed. Mm. The idea of race. It's, it's a new invention, a mm-hmm. social construction. Not, do not confuse race with ethnicity. That's two different things. Mm-hmm. Ethnicity is your history, is your culture, is your stories. It's the food that your mama made. You know, that, that's ethnicity. And when black people speak of being black, they're, we're always going between ethnicity and race, consistently depending upon what the context is. Mm-hmm. Um, and post-traumatic, uh, this race syndrome, is the idea t- of being framed within a hierarchy that sees a human being as three-fifths or weaponizes who they are. Mm-hmm. And the the church, specifically the black church, has been a subversive agent to post-traumatic race disorder uh, because it has formed a community and spaces where a person could be fully human. So, for example, my grandfather, who, was a, who served as a deacon in a church in Troop County, Georgia, he was a sharecropper. But at the church, he got to be deacon. Mm-hmm. That, that's a radical difference going from boy to deacon. Going going from, from boy to being the person who is leading the Sunday school program. Right. That's that's a transformation. So I get to be fully human here when I'm not fully human here. And, and so that's when the, the, the faith community it, it does that. For example, the, the church was the space early on that was the organizing spaces around what was known the Underground Railroad. Mm-hmm. So I get freedom in this space. First African Baptist Church of Savannah, Georgia. Five thousand people of African descent through that particular church. Many of them ended up in Nova Scotia because they decided to fight for the British. Now some people say, "Oh, they were they, you know they were traitors." They said, "No, the British said we could be free, <laughs> so I'm fighting for them." You know, and as a result, they were given property in what we now know as Nova Scotia. So they moved into that space, where some of them ended up in. In the Caribbean, that was also a church, that was a part of the Underground Railroad. The basement of the church, or the the, the crawl space of the church, there were air holes that were shaped in 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 this kind of um, kind of a diamond uh, that signaled that there were uh, people underneath the building. The benches still have the names of the people who designed those benches, but the names are not in English. They're in Arabic. So it's the first church I would say that was formed by the sons of Abraham. Mm. So it's formed by people who were of the Abrahamic tradition, um, and it was a freedom church in the 1700s, and that was a space that fought against this post-traumatic—I uh, call it sometimes slave disorder—this um, uh, this post-traumatic event
3: that 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 really has that America is still recovering from today. Mm-hmm. So I know we have a lot of questions probably out there in the crowd but I'm selfish and I'm going to get one more in before we do that. Nathan, is that okay? It's your podcast. Just it's my <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Who said that? Thank you. No. <laughs> uh, actually there's, there's, there's like there's more. I've got you know that, you know how it is you write so many questions down you get to maybe five. So, mm-hmm. so dur- during these past 2 years, I think we've all experienced the craziness of COVID. And should we not even mention the word anymore? No, we have to. We have to speak it, I guess. So, but we've seen churches and local churches go through uh, a transition which they've never seen before in America and across the globe as well. Reinvent themselves, reimagine themselves, decline in attendance. The pastors that I've talked to and maybe some out there and those who are listening, uh, you don't even know who goes to your church anymore. You don't even know what it means to be a <laughs> preacher anymore. You don't understand what. How do, how do you deal with a congregation in which you're not even in t- literally in touch with. We already know what the potential pitfalls are in the last two years. We've seen it. What are the possibilities, the hopes, and the dreams that, that you can see that are different from how we've been doing the church thing for so many years in America because of something like COVID, because of what we've seen what it's done to our congregations? You know,
5: I think Theology is an example because you're doing the kind of ministry that, that has to happen. COVID helped us understand that ministry is not a church building. And so all of a sudden, you know, churches had to pivot because they had been spending so much money on care for the building, care for the building, not doing ministry, but caring for the building. And all of a sudden, people were forced to do ministry that was more in line with the gospel. Mm-hmm. Because I always say that Jesus was, has framed a mobile ministry and a more technological ministry in the gospel that we did not take hold of that framework. For example, Jesus is like yourself. I mean, he goes wherever he wants to go to do ministry. He gives tweets, blessed are. I mean, he does these kinds of things over and over again to communicate effectively. And so ministers have become producers. Ministers have learned how to do ministry. For example, churches used to love the one wide shot which I hate, um, by the way, where you get to see the whole... Bil- Nobody wants to see your whole church. There's a reason it's called the establishing shot in film, because I establish where I am. After that, please give me a close-up, which creates intimacy. I'll create some camera movement, which creates some tension or suspense. Don't keep me in one particular shot. And I don't need a lot of money. Just get me three phones, and I can get three different shots, which will allow me to create intimacy. Then get yourself somebody, call them a digital pastor, but just someone who knows something about a, you know, how to respond to people online, and let them communicate. Do something called a hashtag so that people can follow exactly what's happening. So all of a sudden, you have, the, as, as, as Dr. Nash would say, you have the, the, the eight-track church is now clashing with the streaming world in the in the process. and so all of these eight track ministry people are all of a sudden being confronted with digital uh, ministry. Leonard Sweet puts it this way, we, we have analog people running the church, but we have the need for a digital ministry. Yep. So you have all of these digital immigrants and there are some people who are digital natives in here because some people some of you all have never seen something called. An LP, you know, you don't, don't, don't know don't know what it is. Oh, looks like a giant disc to you or something like that. Um, so if you if you know what it, raise your hand if you know what an LP is. Raise your hand. If you know what an a track is, you, you guys raise your hand. Raise your hand. a track people, cassette, forty five. We're the forty five? Who actually played? Caroline, put your hand down. Put your hand down. You've ne- you did not have a forty five player. Okay, but have you used it? That's right. You're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. It right. did. All right. That's right. You read articles. That's right. Who knows the spindle for the 45?
4: Putting
5: pennies on There you go. There you go. Something called a record player. And the sound, when the record go down there, just a little crispy. you are dating yourself. I know. I'm saying, but I'm saying that's analog. That's straight up Analog. The digital revolution demands that you are mobile and not stuck anywhere. We are in the Imperial in Atlanta doing brew theology. This is a mobile digital ministry that is not stuck in a particular building, which means you have the gospel that can spread from this space. And what we're talking about now, there'll be someone in Sri Lanka who will hear this. Mm -hmm. That's different than being bound by a building. And that's the beauty of the fact that we're in a digital age if we take hold of
3: it.
2: Yeah. yeah. That's right. good stuff.
3: Piper also, since you're a digital age person, is that what they call you on the – she's got a great TikTok account. Oh, Phenomenal. No. <laughs> she's, she's a preacher's kid. Now listen, there's some good stuff yes. in there.
2: I do. TikTok. That's the new thing. Everybody's actually – I still won't I learned,
3: do it. I won't do TikTok.
2: No, it's, it was the most used website in 2021 wow. over Google if that tells you anything people went to tiktok more than they went to google
5: that's amazing
2: yeah you got to learn how to do a tiktok dance no just kidding i never had to i've never done a dance but that is a place where digital um public theology is happening though for sure i agree yeah in little three minute chunks three minute chunks three minute ministry that's the limit yeah yeah so one last question So as we end our time together, what would you say is the greatest prophetic word for American Christians or maybe white Christians or people of color?
5: Mm, um, Greatest prophetic word. I think that that the most challenging prophetic word or words would be love and justice. Mm. It's still the most Mm -hmm. challenging because we want love that's sentimental, uh, that's divorced from justice. Or we want justice that's divorced from love, which just becomes legalism and becomes destructive. Mm. But when love and justice are married and they walk down the aisle and say "I do," they always have children named liberation and transformation. Mm. And so, and so we have to make sure that those two are married together, um, so that we can produce liberation and transformation in this world.
2: Mm. And that's what makes it prophetic is that it's a challenge. It's not easy. It, it, no, no,
5: it's, it's not, not easy. It's not something you just say, no, okay, pastor, and then no, you go do it. No, <laughs> L- Love and action is difficult. Mm-hmm. And being just without being, seeking retribution is difficult. Mm-hmm. Because we, we, we see just America sees justice as just simply retribution.
4: Mm-hmm.
5: And Jesus talks about distributive justice, yeah. which is radically different yeah. uh, than retribution.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that reminds me also of the idea of um, building a coalition, because I mm-hmm. think that you can't do justice without doing it in community with other people. No. So what do you think? You talk about building coalitions between academics and lay people or reg- folks that fl- sweep the floor.
5: Yeah, you got to build a band. I mean, that's. The, I, I was in a class at ILIF with uh, Vincent Harding, mm. and... Um, Vincent Harding uh, did something. I was, you know, giving this critique in reference to Malcolm X, and, and Dr. Harding knew Malcolm X, his own other thing. Yeah. Um, he shut me up real quick. Mm-hmm. Um, but he played the beginning of the Eyes on the Prize documentary. Mm-hmm. And at the, at the beginning of every class, he would always play like a Coltrane or Nina Simone or something like that. And he says, do you all see it? He'd play it, and we were like, what are you talking about? He said, well, let me rewind and play it again. He said, do you see it? I don't see anything, it's, you know, some, some black folk marching in Memphis, what are you talking about? So he said, no, let me play it again, do you see it? And we all shook our heads, and he said, hmm, he said, notice in this picture that you see a man with one leg, you see an elder, you see a person in their wheelchairs, you notice that you see different people, he said this, he said, and he looked at me and said, Otis, your idea of revolution is mighty male and able."
4: Mm. He said,
5: "This revolution includes the man with one leg.
4: Mm-hmm. This
5: revolution includes Mama who's 87. Mm-hmm. This revolution includes the person who can't see but is not blind." He said, "This." Re-, he said, "What revolution do you want to make your maleness feel good, or one that makes God proud?" Mm. I mean, it was it was. I was like, "Wow, okay, let me shut up," you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But, and, and that was the, co- he was saying, the, those kind you want that kind of revolution. You want that kind of coalition. Yeah. Uh, and only loving and respecting people can a revolution like that be present. Mm. It, it can't be present when you are so cloistered and exclusive that you can't recognize
3: other people's gifts.
2: Mm, that's so good. If it's not for everybody, it's not for anybody. Nope, mm. not at all.
3: Thank you for this. This was great. Uh, let's give a round of applause, <laughs> Reverend. You're not done yet. You're not done yet. You're done with us now. Now all these people out here are going to attack you with their oh, questions. Oh Lord! Oh Lord! So oh, we've got. later. We've got time. No, we're going to we're going to <laughs> do that right now to kind of so that people are focused in on this. Okay. All right. So if you have a question right now, you're going to go ahead and use this mic up here, we got one up here and just come on up and use this mic. Where? That mic? Oh, that, never mind. We got we got another mic. Because people here at McAfee School of Theology are prepared. They're preparing, they're preparing winners. Well
2: played, Ryan. Well played. Winners.
5: <laughs> Before you ask the question now, whose who's preaching class were you in? Who's,
2: I was in your yeah, preaching thank you, class. At <laughs> so McAfee School of Theology. <laughs> My question for you is how do you include different intersectionalities
0: which you are not a part of personally?
5: Mm, oh, that's a great question. I think that it's important for, for, for a preacher, for a writer, because I see preaching as artistry, that you're doing, you're doing the art. And any artist is always bringing in other artists to mentor them so that they can have a different eye of what they're going to create. So I say to, to, to every brother who is preaching, if you don't have a sister who is your mentor – then you will only be able to communicate fifty percent of the gospel at best. So, so you're going to have to bring in someone. If in fact, um, based on your orientation, if you if you don't have someone who can give you a queer theological perspective, then you're going you're going to fail in terms of your framing. So you've got to have different people from different perspectives uh, that will challenge the way. Just like. Any good musician, like I'm, I'm fascinated. I've been listening, watching the, the, the Kanye West. Uh, is it, you all been watching that? Genius. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I've been watching that recently. And what's been fascinating about Kanye is, so he's influenced by No ID. Uh, he was trying to you know, get down with Rockefeller Records. But all of those people were also not just influenced by hip-hop. So they're influenced by jazz. They're influenced by blues. Uh, they're influenced by R&B, but also classical. So Jay-Z, when he's doing his freestyle raps, is also referencing, in terms of some of the staccato pieces that he does, he's referencing Mozart. Yeah. Mm. So he's bringing in certain elements. So you have to do that if you want to be
3: able to expand your artistry. Mm. Another question. So, yeah, the question here for those listening there. Who are the preachers that are creating those spaces for shadow work? And the people and the parishioners doing that shadow work. You know, I,
5: I think that Howard Thurman is the best example to me for helping people do their shadow work. He, he, he talks about um, this idea of the genuine self. How can you discover the genuine self? And he, he has a meditation and also a sermon where he goes through the fact that the decision you make today you will not know if it's the right one till 30 years from now. He said, but can you embrace the decision you make today whether it is right or wrong 30 years from now and say what have I learned? I mean he's all he was always raised he talks about the narrow edge Can you walk the narrow... There are some people who like everything laid out for them, simple spaces. But then there are some of us, I think he says it's Martin Buber, um, who said that the best space to be is in the narrow edge. I know not where God will place me tomorrow. Mm -hmm. I live on the narrow edge. And then he goes on to talk about this idea of the inward journey, that I am on a journey. It is not the external. But how do I come into contact with myself and he says he has a sermon where he says when was the last time you had a good conversation with yourself and he walks through that conversation what should the questions be for yourself and that was really his 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 life's work he calls it the life's working paper what is your life's working paper because whatever it was 20 years ago you keep adding pages (laughs) because you keep learning more stuff in the process of your working paper. Um, and so Thurman to me is the best example of pushing people to do their their shadow work. More
6: questions. So I know uh, sometimes people who are assigned to churches or particular ministries, uh, you mentioned uh, a word that I love and that is authenticity. So sometimes when people are assigned to certain ministries that have a particular culture or dynamic. And as a, as a person who's being assigned to the ministry or maybe even a ministry that you choose uh, to be a part of, yet there are elements of that ministry uh, where you see where you are, you have the, the proclivity to push beyond some of the boxes that they create and so sometimes uh, the the culture of the establishment to which you are assigned or that you are inserted, uh, you know, there's a tension there. Uh, what advice would you give to someone who's trying to find or or the best way to project uh, their authenticity within those within that framework? Am I making sense? Believe you are. I believe okay. You are.
5: The challenge of of ministry is the the challenge of excitement that you feel that God has placed all these things and these ideas in your head and here you are at a church you're like no we're not doing that Mm-mm-mm, nope and the tension sometimes I believe is we want the vision we think God has given us let me say it again the vision we think God has given us because that vision that we have we really are placing ourselves on a pedestal so that we can say, look what we did. Mm -hmm. And many times the tension pushback is for us to sit with people. Can you be with Mother Jenkins after she lost her son? Can you spend time with uh, Mr. Richards who is a Vietnam veteran and is still going through post-traumatic stress. Can you spend time, and when you spend time with the people long enough, it'll reshape your vision but then give you permission to accept a vision that is from God where you're not at the center. Mm
4: -hmm.
5: And that happens when you spend time with the people. Because we get into trouble as, as ministers because... Ministers are arrogant and insecure (laughs) and ignorant at the same time, and that mixture is deadly unless you have people who can ground you as you're going through this process. Because there you are, you're, you're, you're at a pulpit, you're speaking, you're doing this, that, and the other. And somebody goes, oh, great job, you're a minister. And then they go in the back and like, it was really terrible. But, uh, <laughs> um, you know, and they, they, they're blowing up your head left and right. It's, it's good to, to have a true family experience with, with people who honestly love you, honestly pray for you, and you learn how to pray with and, and for people. And that's really the ministry. The ministry of Jesus was he spent time with people. I mean, he just hung out and was spending time. He, he has the longest conversation in all of Scripture with a woman at the well. I mean, there, there was no major, he didn't touch, he didn't spit on the ground, take any mud, just had a conversation. And gives us an example of ministry in the conversation. Longer than anybody else in Scripture, he's just talking, you know. And so we, we, we have to embrace those moments of ministry um, and push against and raise the question like Thurman um, of our own life's working paper whats what we're doing, is that really for God or is that really so that we can be on a pedestal?
7: You had, I think, spoken earlier about the church and the building and how COVID has changed. So as we, well, I didn't mean to say the word, the C word. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> as we're moving well, as our life has changed, whether the C word stays or not, how do you think the churches and the communities communities will change as far as how ministers and pastors and will preach in general from now on? Because I live with a 26-year-old. She's given up on church. She loved her church before COVID. And this listing online has just totally turned her off because... It took a whole generation of people out of the church that were just getting to it. So how are pastors or people in general supposed to be eager to return and how are pastors going to be now that we have to re- return because everything is different? Mm. How are pastors supposed to mm. preach now once they return with everything? Mm. That's a
5: great question. I, you know, I, I think it's just going to be in, a, in, in just so many different ways that you will have churches are local, that churches are communities. And the question really is, how will these communities reconnect? How will they come back? Uh, and what will that look like? And it's going to be in a variety of ways. For, for some communities, it's going to be, you know, we're, we've created a new ministry and we're, we're building in a different way. For, for some communities, COVID was devastating because you had seniors who are not digital, and it disconnected them, and it, it it sped up their physical demise. They they could not be with people they loved, and Zoom ain't doing it. Yeah, right. Zoom, it's like I need to be with my crew on Sunday afternoon after church, and that that's important. And we we have to we have to reeducate people around the purpose of the church Mm. it's this community this unique powerful broken community and it's like flannery o'connor in that brokenness we can see the grace of god Mm -hmm. i don't want to go to a perfect church i want to be in the space where my deacon used to be a major drug dealer and is a deacon in my church I want to be there where my trustee was addicted and struggles with addiction and says, you know, I'm 20 years sober. That, to me, is the kind of community that we need to embrace and hold very close to, to our heart and then figure out how do we communicate and assist in the development. Every church is going to be different. I think every community is going to be different. They're going to, ha- they're going to have to find their authenticity, because I, I'm sorry churches shouldn't be like McDonald's Because thats the, I mean that's the scary thing about McDonald's that no matter where you go it tastes exactly the same something's wrong wherever you go it should be different if there are multiple imperials the burger should be different wherever they are because there's a different artist in the kitchen it shouldn't be the same and, and, and we don't want churches to, to operate in that
3: manner mm-hmm. alright I think it's time for us to take a break and we want to thank you again. Appreciate your work. This is Reverend Dr. Otis Moss, now at the McAfee School of Theology. Those who are listening, go to McAfee School of Theology. Hashtag these bears preach.
2: There we go. <laughs> Here we go. Sick them. Yeah, man. No, no, no.
3: Oh, wrong Wrong school. Wrong school. <laughs>
2: Ryan's going to get in trouble. Hey, All right. oh, I wish this conversation break, was like three times longer. Sure.
0: Thanks so much for listening to the brew theology podcast. We'll have part two of this event for you in the near future. If you'd like to know more about the brew theology podcast, you can find us at brew theology.org on Facebook and Instagram at brew theology and on Twitter at brew underscore theology. If you'd like to hear Piper on TikTok go to at cbfplr. And if you'd like to learn more about the McAfee School of Theology, go to theology.mercer.edu. If you're interested in starting your own brew theology group, please reach out to us. You can reach us at ryan at brewtheology.org or janelle at brewtheology.org. We look forward to hearing from you. Cheers.